0: we're continuing to look at the new testament letter to the romans and you might be sitting there asking or thinking are we still talking about sin yes we are still talking about sin and as my father-in-law likes to ask me are you still against it yes yes i'm still against sin and so is the lord but In this passage where it seems like we are for so long and for months really dealing with sin, it is helpful to get our bearings on kind of where we have been and the specific kinds of sin we are looking at. And so two weeks ago, we dealt with sins primarily directed against God, specifically denying His existence and choosing to worship other things. Last week, we thought about sins against God's design for us how we dishonor God by following our desires instead of of his design. And so today the focus is more about how this denial of God's design harms other people, our fellow image bearers on earth. So we looked at sins directly against God, sins more against his design for us, and today it is sins that harm others. Others is the main focus. And so, with that in mind, turn to the end of Romans chapter 1. It's in the bulletin for you. You're welcome again to use your own Bibles, have the text open in front of you. Romans 1 verses 28 through 32. Let us hear the Word of God. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die... They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, for the reading and hearing of your word. And God, we humbly pray that you would help us to sit under your word today, myself included. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to faithfully proclaim your word spirit work through the power of your word go forth as you promised to do that you would not accomplish nothing but that you would accomplish your great purposes through your word O god open our ears to hear open our hearts and minds we pray god that the spirit would work in us through the word to accomplish those great purposes for us to save us to renew us to convict us to comfort us and to always be pointing us back to jesus in his name we pray. Amen. So these verses, these five verses we have at the end of Romans 1, they occur in the context of this larger argument in the letter. And so again, we, we kind of looked at the big buffet a number of weeks ago, and now we're looking at a lot of specifics. And so there's really only one specific problem we are dealing with in this passage today. And that problem is clear in verse 28. The Apostle Paul writes this, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Like last week week, we see that language, God gave them up. That when people obstinately pursue sin, God gives them over to those sins, letting them suffer the consequences for their actions. And in this instance, their refusal to treat God as God leads them to having a debased mind. And we got to start like, what is debased? That's not really a common word in our language. We don't find that word anywhere else in the Bible, at least the English version of that word. It means worthless or corrupted. And this worthless mind is evidenced by the fact that people do what they shouldn't do. It's like something misfires in the brain, that what are you going to do? That thing I'm not supposed to do? Okay. Okay. So that's a worthless mind. A debased mind is a mind like that. And it's not that they do it out of ignorance. Verse 32 makes it clear. They know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. So Paul is writing that people who turn away from God end up doing things they know they shouldn't do. So that's the specific problem he is addressing in these verses that we're going to talk about this morning. And so I want to ask four questions about this specific problem of doing things you know you shouldn't do. You can find these questions in the outline provided in the bulletin. You're welcome to use that. You're welcome to write on it. You're welcome to just not look at it. That's fine, too. First question. Well, what kinds of things are people doing that they shouldn't do? Well, Paul gives a long list. He includes 21 vices or expressions of sin. That's a lot. Some of these are broad definitions of sin, like unrighteousness or evil. Others are sinful desires, like covetousness, envy, malice. Some terms deal with sinful words, like gossip slander, boastful. Some of these sins seem really serious and uncommon, like murder. And some of them seem not that big a deal and very common, like disobedient to parents. Some of these sins actually seem really close to one another, like heartless and ruthless. What's the difference? Not much, I guess. So what do we make of these 21 terms, these vices that Paul describes. Well, it is certainly not an exhaustive list, meaning these are the only sins that exist in the world. You can just look at it and go, well, stealing's not on there. Adultery's not on there. So we're missing at least some of the Ten Commandments sins. It's also not a well-ordered catalog of sins either. You can't be like, oh, well, that's clearly what those four are about. And then these three are about this. Like, no, it doesn't break down that nicely. People have tried, but it doesn't work. And so what is it that unites these 21 terms? It's that people know these things are wrong. That's Paul's point, after all. That people do these things even though they know these things are wrong. Well, how do you know that these things are wrong? Well, I'd encourage you to look at this list and tell me which of these things you would like someone to do to you. I would guess none is the answer. And so we can see that they are all wrong because most of these things obviously harm others or treat others poorly. Last week we talked about how sin should not be limited to just what causes harm, that there are sins of dishonor. Well, we're kind of not talking about dishonor this week. This week it is sins that truly harm. And so those harm sins are easy for us to be like, yeah, I know that's wrong. And so what is Paul talking about? He's talking about things that we clearly understand are wrong because they harm other people. And yet, People still do these things. That gets to the second question. Why would you do things you know you shouldn't do? Now, every parent in this room has asked this question of their child. Why are you doing that thing you know you shouldn't do? It's an expression of befuddlement as their child sheepishly looks down and mutters, I don't know. But the fact that this has happened to every parent in the world should help us to realize it's not that surprising if it happens all that often. We should expect people to do what they know they shouldn't do. Okay, but why? Yes, it happens a lot, but why do people do this? Shouldn't they not do it if they know better? Well, often it comes down to one of three reasons Why we don't do what we know we should do or do what we should not do. First, we might do something wrong because we think we will avoid the punishment for doing the wrong thing. I may exceed the speed limit when driving, thinking that they're not going to pull me over. I mean, that guy went way faster than me. I'm not going to get caught speeding. Even though I'm breaking the law, I will not be punished for it. And so sometimes we do what we know we shouldn't do because we know we're not going to get punished for it. A second reason we do something we know is wrong is because we excuse our actions and we know other people will excuse us as well. In other words, people don't think it's that wrong and they'll understand why we did it. Kids, Halloween is coming up and you will likely come upon an unattended bucket of candy that says, please take one. Now, people are going to understand if you take more than one. They'll say, what do you expect to happen? They'll excuse your behavior of disobeying the sign. And so in some ways, we can excuse things that are wrong because we know other people will be fine with it. A third reason we do something wrong is because we so strongly desire something that we will do anything to get it. Maybe we so desperately want a new job that we will haughtily boast about our achievements and resume and slander other candidates. We may know we're not being entirely truthful, but we so want that new job that we will justify that behavior in pursuit of our desires. Now, all three of those reasons can be traced back to a denial of God. Sure, nobody may catch you doing something you know is wrong, but doesn't God see all that you do? Sure, other people may give you a pass and excuse your sin, but will a holy God let those sins slide? Sure, you may justify your actions because you want something really badly, but if you believed you have a God who provides for you, would you need to go that route? See, we tend to do what we know is wrong because we have disregarded either completely or temporarily the existence of a holy God who sees all and judges all. So that is why we do things we know we shouldn't do. And all of this sounds like a really bad personal problem for each one of us, except for the fact that we live in community that we are social creatures and our behavior affects those around us. And that brings us to the third question. What are the social implications of this behavior, of doing what you know you shouldn't do? And Paul tells us in verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Paul warns us against approving of the sinful practices of others. Why is that a bad thing? Why is that such a serious danger? Well, you are putting yourself and others in danger. Think back to the New Testament reading from Matthew 18. Jesus said, if you're going to cause any one of these little ones to sin, if you're going to lead them into sin, it would be better if someone tied a giant rock around your neck and threw you to the bottom of the ocean. It would be better for you to suffer that death than to suffer God's judgment against you for leading them into sin. You can hear Jesus is a fierce protector of his sheep, like how moms can get in mama bear mode and watch out when they're in mama bear mode. He says, you do not mess with my people, especially my little ones. And so it's a danger for us if we are leading people into sin. But it's not just a danger for those who are doing the approving. By approving of the sins of others, we put them in danger. One pastor tells the story about how a member of his church asked him to stop speaking so strongly of sin and judgment to change his words and call them mistakes instead of sins. That that way people would not be as frightened and they would feel more accepted. So the pastor said, okay, well, what would happen if I took a bottle of rat poison and I put Mickey Mouse stickers on it? And put rainbow ribbons on it and put it in the church nursery. Is that bottle of poison safer now? No. It is far deadlier. In the same way, we endanger people's souls by not speaking clearly about sin. We encourage them to continue doing that which leads to eternal damnation all under the mistaken notion of loving others and not being judgmental. It's at this point that we have to make the obvious and necessary connection to last week's sermon on homosexuality. In our world today, there is no sin that is more strongly approved of than that. And oftentimes, Christians can be looked down upon for speaking so much about it. Well, as soon as another sin in the world has people celebrating it and marching in parades for it, we will talk about that as well. But this is a sin that is being approved of. And many well-meaning Christians Try to be approving allies of this sin. But the Bible is clear, and make no mistake, approving of sin is itself a sin. Putting ourselves in danger as well as others. That we are not loving people by telling them it is safe to drink poison. We must walk the delicate path of disapproving of sin while loving the people who sin. The world says that love must include approval, and the Bible in the verses we have read today shows us that love does not include approval, and we are called to stand for God's truth. Now, that is the most obvious example of how people approve of sin today, and some of you may be sitting there thinking, okay, well, I don't approve of that. Good. But we are all guilty of approving of sin in more subtle ways than that. That is not the only sin that is approved of today. We can do it in ways we might not even realize. Do we ever listen to gossip without challenging the person who is gossiping to us? Then we are approving of their gossip. Do we encourage people in their envy and covetous desires as they are seeking the materialistic pleasures of this world? We're approving of their sins, of wanting more and more and more, and looking at the world for satisfaction. Do we approve of the malicious mockery of our political leaders for whom we did not vote, slandering them and approving of their slander? See, approving of the sins of others is not limited to marching in parades. It can occur in the everyday conversations we have with family and classmates, with our coworkers, with our friends. So, what happens to a world where people not only knowingly do what is wrong, but approve of others who are doing what is wrong? Well, that brings us to the fourth question for the passage. What does a world look like without moral foundations? That was the world of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 5, people calling good evil and evil good, just a total disruption, chaos, and confusion about what is right and wrong. That when God is no longer acknowledged as a righteous creator we fall into moral confusion and chaos. And when the foundations fall, it makes sense the house falls. What is right and wrong end up being determined by other things than God. And those things can lead us on dark paths to dangerous places. So what does a world without moral foundations look like? Here are a few unsavory examples you can end up following the path of utilitarianism, which means that right and wrong are determined by what just works best. This perspective has given birth in, our, in the history of the world to things like eugenics, where the weak and undesirable in society are exterminated to make the human race more optimal so that we work better as people. It doesn't matter so much if something is right or wrong. What matters is whether it works best. That's a frightening place to go. It can also lead to something like opportunism, where people do whatever they can get away with. If the world will let you be unfaithful to your spouse, then you just go for it. If you are powerful enough to extort money from a powerless people, I guess it's yours for the taking. You can do it. It doesn't so much matter if something is right or wrong. What matters is what you can do. That's another frightening path to walk. We can also follow a path of hedonism, where people live to satisfy their own desires and pleasures above all. That if you want something, the only wrong is not pursuing what you want. Go fulfill all of your desires, no matter what they are and what others may tell you. It doesn't so much matter if something is right or wrong. What matters is if you want it and if you can get what you want. I hope you can see that those are not some pretty places that you want to go. Those don't sound like a good world to live in, but I hope you can also hear the echoes of some of those in our world today that for a society to function in a healthy way, there must be agreed-upon moral foundations. But as more and more people disregard God, we are told He gives us over to our moral degeneration. And without those moral foundations, the world becomes darker and more dangerous because we are willing to do wrong to others even when we know it is wrong to do so. And the very moral degeneration created is itself an expression of God's wrath of unrighteousness against us. God gives people over to this moral confusion and chaos so that we can see, oh, this is what a world without God is like. It is a frightening place. Okay, well, that was uplifting. Is there any hope? Like, because like that doesn't sound very hopeful, does it? What if we see like this is a moral mess? Paul, you're describing something real bad. Like, I feel like I'm part of that. I do that sometimes. The kids, they, the kids know. You probably know too. You do things you know you shouldn't do. So, how can people filled with sin change? Well, Paul doesn't give us any good news here. That's because this passage is one small part of his larger discussion on the problem of sin, which is one small part of his letter that is meant to be a good news letter. And so we should not leave this passage with only bad news. We need to see it in the context of the good news of the letter, that people can be saved from sin, from sin's guilt, from sin's power. And the way we do that is we repent. We repent of our sin by confessing, God, that sounds like me. Yeah, I know there's people out there who do that more than me in worse ways than me, but that's me. I do that. I'm coming back to you. Have mercy on me, God. Please have mercy. I have disregarded you in too many ways in doing what I know to be wrong. And Paul says, God will show mercy to you. He has shown mercy in Christ. That though we know we deserve to die for these things, Jesus died in our place taking the punishment upon Himself that our sins were justly punished in Him so we can be forgiven. But not just forgiven and told, try better. No, we are forgiven and given His own righteousness. That we are covered in Jesus' perfect obedience that never once did Jesus do anything wrong. And it is only standing in Jesus and his righteousness that we can stand before a God who is the creator of the earth and has every reason to judge us for our sin. This is the mercy of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we're still left like, even if I'm like wearing Jesus' righteousness, I still feel pretty full of sin. Can I be better? Can I change? Yeah. See, Jesus doesn't just save us from sin. He saves us for obedience. Later in this letter, Paul writes this in 12.2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. I love when we are given commands that say things we can't do. He says, be transformed. Like you, Good luck with that. No, the whole letter to Romans is that transformation happens through the power of Christ working in us by the Holy Spirit to renew our minds through the Word as the Spirit is working in us. You see, we are tempted to be like the world. We turn from God's moral standard. We do what we know to be wrong. But the Holy Spirit busts into our minds and starts working through the Word of God to transform us. He takes debased, worthless minds and renews them so that we see God's righteous decrees as good. As good for us and good for others. And then, I love the part that you make by testing, that we get to go test this out in obedience, practicing, obeying God and loving our fellow Christians so that we see there is a different kind of world breaking through here. That a new and better kingdom is breaking through in God's renewed, transformed people that is not full of darkness and people doing what they know to be wrong, but people who are doing what they know to be right by the grace and power of God. That is the promise we are given here because that picture in Romans 1 is so dark and yet the light bursts through in the gospel. May it burst through here. And may it burst through in each and every one of us as the Spirit applies the saving work of Christ and transforms us to delight in obeying our good and gracious Father. Let us pray. Oh God, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you are slow to anger. That you are abounding in steadfast love and mercy. Because, Lord, you had every opportunity to judge us before today. That we have all done wrong. We have all deserved to die and suffer the punishments that you lay out in your word for sin. And yet, by your mercy, you have postponed those things. In fact, you have saved many of us. There are some of us here, though, Lord, that have not turned to you. And we pray, God, that you would work through your spirit to convict them in their hearts that they too need to repent of their sins and trust in Christ, that they cannot be good on their own, that they too are filled with sin and their only hope is in Christ. And so, Lord, help us to trust in You. Help us daily to not disregard You, but to obey You. Spirit, help us in this. In Jesus' name, amen.